Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Uh, It's been a great privilege that we've had over these past several weeks to study these opening verses of this 20th chapter. Uh, There are just a few verses in Revelation that talk to us about the millennial kingdom of Christ. And this first part of chapter 20 is all that we really have here to explain to us what the golden age will be like when Christ comes back to reign upon the earth. But we don't lack information about the kingdom. Uh, Of all the Bible topics, as we've discussed this before, that of all Bible topics, one of the most frequent ones that you find in Scripture is that of the uh, kingdom of Christ. Uh, The Old Testament prophets speak of it. Jesus spoke of it. The apostles spoke of it as well. Faith is the most important and, uh, I guess, the, the most talked about subject that we find in Scripture, but very close to that is the second coming of Christ. And one of the things that we've learned is that the second coming is not confined to a singular event that we call the rapture. Now, that's what most people think of when you talk about the second coming of Christ. They think about the rapture. But the rapture is just a small part of the second coming. And although it is the great hope for living Christians, it's not really the most important part. The most important part and most emphasis is placed upon this, especially in the Old Testament. The most emphasis is placed upon when Christ comes after the tribulation and then begins his kingdom upon the earth. So I've enjoyed these past few weeks going back into the Old Testament and looking at uh, many references we find there, things that thrilled the prophets as they spoke about them. Uh, Often the prophecies came in the middle of, of apostasy, in the middle of Israel's turning their back on God, and God pronounced curses upon them for doing that. But there was always the hope that remained. Always within these prophecies, there, there is this, this hope that God would redeem Israel and he would restore them to their land. And the hope is there because God promised it. And the reality of it is that none of God's promises go unfulfilled. It's like Gary saying just a moment ago, his, his promises, he's faithful and true. And so God takes those promises in his hands and he orders the course of our lives. God is not passive in what takes place in the world, but rather God orchestrates the course of history in order to bring about his intended result. James, the Lord's brother, said in Acts fifteen eighteen, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742 says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. So God is going to bring in the kingdom because that's what he's promised. And the wonderful blessing for each of us is that we reap the benefits of God's promise. Now, he did say that he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. That will be fulfilled. But he also promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through that when the kingdom comes. Now, in speaking of the kingdom, uh, chapter 20 tells us that the entire redeemed, the entirety of the redeemed are blessed to rule with him. That's what we find promised in verses 4 through 6. Now, this evening, I want to continue that theme, only we're going to look at a statement that's made here in this section about the resurrection. This is the doctrine of the first resurrection, and those that are in the first resurrection will be the ones that rule in the kingdom with God. Now, if you look again... 
at uh, Revelation chapter 20, and we've read these same verses for weeks now, but we've got another part here that we want to talk about. Uh, John says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, two or three weeks ago, I spoke to you on this part of the subject on the ruling members of the kingdom. And those that rule with Christ in this kingdom come from millennia of ages. Many, many different people all throughout the history of the world all died having their hope in Christ. And when we come to Revelation chapter 20, we see them here, all of them in resurrected bodies and all of them uh, in glorified bodies ruling with Christ. I, I was standing in the lobby of a church in Napa a few years ago, and on the wall in front of me there was a copy of that church's statement of faith, and the articles of faith were all there framed on the board, placed in the lobby, which, by the way, I thought uh, is a pretty good idea and maybe something we might want to do. But I was reading down through the list of articles, and, and quite frankly, the whole list is basically what we have here in our church. It's the New Hampshire Confession of Faith of 1833. And as I read down through the articles, of course, it wasn't titled that. It was their statement of faith. But I recognize that, that that's the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And I read on down to the end of it to the 18th article. And that article is titled, Of the World to Come. Same article that we have in our statement of faith. But I want you to listen to the way it reads uh, originally. It said, We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution. That a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be a judge to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. Now, the New Hampshire Confession is a really good confession because it expresses the, the same ideas about doctrine that we hold in our church and really the same ones that have been held for centuries among Baptist people. But the, but the wording of this last article, what that church had on their board, is really unfortunate because it appears from this article that there is one resurrection, both of the redeemed and the reprobate, that both of them will ra be raised at the same time, both will be judged at the same time, and then they'll be sent to their respective places for eternity. So that article, it's titled, Of the World to Come, but it says nothing at all about the rapture. It says nothing about the tribulation. And wholly missing from it is anything about the physical, literal kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And that's why in our statement of faith, we've actually modified that last article so that it reflects what we believe and what the New Testament so clearly teaches about the world to come. Now, the part of that that concerns us tonight is the statement that says, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead. And in the New Hampshire Confession, originally, that appears as one resurrection. 
Whereas our text here in the book of Revelation clearly indicates that there are two resurrections. They don't occur at the same time. And the end of the resurrection, the first resurrection, is separated from the second by a period of 1,000 years. And so you ask, well, why doesn't the New Hampshire Confession of Faith clearly state that? At least I hope that's what you're thinking and you're going to ask. And the answer to it is really quite simple. It's because that confession reflects an amillennial view of uh, of the end times, of the kingdom. So it's basically saying that Christ is going to raise all of the dead at the same time and then everything's over. Eternity begins immediately, the lost go to hell, and the saved go to heaven. Now, we've already studied this, that that is spiritualizing the text rather than understanding it literally. So how are you going to explain that away when you come to chapter 20 and it says there are two resurrections and not one, and it tells us these two are separated by a period of 1,000 years? Well, the typical way of doing that is what you find, of course, in the amillennial view. And I'm going to read to you what uh, one author says about this. This is Albert Barnes, who is a... A commentator from the 19th century and generally good on a lot of things, but he has an amillennial view. So how does he deal with that to get rid of, the, of, a, of a resurrection from the dead or a thousand-year period that's in that text? Well, I, I want to read this to you, and, and don't think that it's too technical to be interesting because just stay with me a little bit, and I'll, I'll try to explain it to you. But it's very important that we get this right. But here's how he, how he explains it. He says, the short sentence, this is the first resurrection, should be seen as the conclusion to verse 4, where the enthroned saints in heaven reign with Christ. The first resurrection, then, is a spiritual resurrection, much the same as the second death is a spiritual death. The first one means eternal life in the presence of God, the second, complete separation from God. There is no doubt that the second resurrection, which John omits from this discussion, is a bodily phenomenon. And by comparison, if the second death is a spiritual death for the unbeliever, then the first death, which is not mentioned, refers to the physical death of the believer. We need not infer a first spiritual resurrection of the wicked, for without regeneration they remain dead in their transgressions and sins. Their second spiritual death is in effect their eternal death since they are forever cut off from God's grace extended to them during their life on earth. The contrast is striking because what is gained for the saints is lost for the wicked. The saints receive eternal life, but the wicked eternal death. Notice these points. The first physical death of the saints underlies their spiritual resurrection, which is eternal life. The first physical death of the wicked is separation from God, who is the source of life. The first physical death of the saints results in their entering heaven and exempts them from suffering a second spiritual death. The second physical resurrection of the wicked underlies their spiritual death. The second spiritual death of the wicked is eternal separation from God. Now your head's probably spinning about now. What's all that about? Those who belong to Christ die once but rise twice spiritually and physically, whereas those who have rejected him rise once but die twice physically and spiritually. I know all of that seems to be very confusing. Let me just distill all of that down into just a few short sentences. Barnes is saying here that the first resurrection that's spoken of in verses 4 and 5 is a spiritual resurrection. That it has nothing at all to do with the body, but what it actually refers to is the regeneration of a believer. This is when he is raised from spiritual death into spiritual life, and then he's talking about the regenerated believers that are in heaven. 
So verse number 4 is not actually talking about a literal kingdom of God upon the earth, but he views it as God's saints are ruling in heaven with him. And so the bodily resurrection is omitted entirely in the discussion, and it's implied in the passage but not there, and what's actually talked about is either spiritual life or spiritual death. Now there's a great problem with that interpretation. The problem is, that every time you find the word resurrection in the New Testament, which is more than 40 times, it always refers to the resurrection of the body. Now, J.A. Seiss writes, the word here rendered resurrection is more than 40 times used in the New Testament and always in one sense of arising again of the body after it has fallen under the power of death. The emphasizing of it as the resurrection cannot with any degree of propriety be understood as a mere metaphorical or symbolic rising. And so the usage of this word every other time in the New Testament tells us that it's speaking of a bodily resurrection. It's not talking about regeneration. This is the body that rises. And we notice in this text that it says this is the first resurrection. So if it's the first resurrection and we're talking about a bodily resurrection, then there has to be a second. You don't have a a first without a second. So we have two resurrections that take place, and the second occurs 1,000 years after the first. Now, both of those have to be bodily resurrections because that's the way resurrection is used in the New Testament. So why are people confused about this? Well, much of the confusion is because if you don't believe in a literal kingdom of God on the earth, there's a great problem with the timing of these two resurrections. And what you end up with is a 1,000-year dead spot. I mean, you have a real problem. What are you going to do with 1,000 years that it speaks of here? Well, we've talked about that as well. What do you do with 1,000 years? You allegorize it. You spiritualize it. You try to explain it away as not being literal. And you do that in order to fit your doctrine. And so instead of reading this in the, in the literal manner as the text would indicate, it has to be changed to fit the, the scheme of interpretation. Well, as we look at that, then we would think, well, if people believe that there's only going to be one resurrection, that all are resurrected at the same time, then there must be some scripture that would say that. Well, there are, in fact, a couple of scriptures that pose a problem if you believe in two resurrections. And we'll, I'll show you how this fits in. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2, this seems to be a problem passage. It says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus said in John five twenty-eight and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done evil under the resurrection of life, and they that have done, uh, or they that have done good rather, under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So, are those verses teaching a general resurrection? And and what I mean by general is that there's one resurrection that includes all people, whether you're saved or you're lost. So, what is the defense against that? How are we going to deal with those two particular scriptures? Well, the defense for it is the preponderance of evidence that we find in the New Testament or in the Bible in general. And so what that's, these two scriptures are talking about is, is not whether there's actually one or two resurrections, but rather the destiny of two different classes of people. One class is resurrected to eternal life, and the other one is resurrected to eternal death. 
And it's impossible that those could be at the same time because the text in Revelation chapter 20 says that they're separated by 1,000 years. Now, it's also interesting, I think, that when two resurrections are mentioned in the Bible or when, or when they're put together like this, the resurrection of the saved always comes before the resurrection of the lost. Daniel 12, verse 2 that we just read is constructed that way. John 5, 28 and 29 are constructed that way. And then when Paul speaks on the same subject in the book of Acts, chapter 24, he speaks of the resurrection of the just before the unjust. This is what Acts 24 says. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So there you see Paul puts one before the other, but he's not talking about a general resurrection. He's simply speaking of the separation between two different classes of people. Well, to further complicate the matter, the first resurrection occurs in stages. It doesn't all come at the same time. And every stage of it is a part of the first resurrection. Now, that's really the point that I'm trying to get to tonight in the sermon, is that this whole thing is different, and there are stages to it. And that's just a long, long introduction to get you to what I really want to talk about tonight. So there are two parts to the message. Next week, we'll get part number two. Tonight, we're going to talk about that part of it, the, the sequence of the first resurrection. There are stages to the first resurrection. Now, there's not actually a place in Scripture that we can go and find all of the stages put into one passage. And so we have to search the scriptures in order to find out what is this sequence of the first resurrection. Well, the place that we go that that really points this out and drives the point home is Paul's great thesis on the resurrection, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we know that that is the most extensive treatment of the resurrection that we find in the Bible. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So there's a particular order to the resurrection. And the word order that you find there in verse number 23 is actually a military term. And it refers to troops that are marching in rank and file behind one another. So what's the order of it? Well, it says Christ is first, and we're going to get to that in just a second. And then notice that it says, Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Now, I hope you paid attention to the first part of the sermon because this is the reason why I said what I said at the beginning. When people think of the second coming, what they think about is the rapture. But this is a long period of time that includes more than just the rapture. We're talking about the time from Christ's resurrection all the way up until the time of, uh, uh, well, the second coming, rather, is, is talking about from the rapture to through the tribulation period and including the 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom. So there's, there's a series of resurrection that's, resurrections that take place. And Christ's resurrection is when, uh, uh, when the first resurrection begins. So Paul says there's a certain order to this. 
Now, the second part of the sermon is not going to take a long time. So um, don't think because you've got a long introduction, you're going to be here forever. You're not going to die before I get done tonight. So uh, we'll, we'll try to wrap it up rather quickly. What are the stages of the resurrection? Well, we have to start with the one that started it all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ, the first fruits. So the first fruits of the resurrection is Jesus Christ. The first in order is the resurrection of Jesus. And from him, all of the rest of the resurrection proceeds. Now, if you think of that in military terms, like, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, it's like Jesus is the commander. And he begins the resurrection, and everyone else that's going to be in it follows on behind him. And so you can say that the resurrection is Christ's battalion that he leads to its final victory over death. And that's really a great thought, because that, in fact, is the way that Paul ends that great resurrection, resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. You're familiar with this. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my purpose tonight is not to prove Christ's resurrection. Now, to get that, go back to the Easter sermon, because that's what we talked about then. We used 1 Corinthians 15, and we're sure of Christ's resurrection. That's why we read Revelation 20, and it tells us there that we're blessed to follow him in the resurrection. And as we've just read, death in every form is vanquished because of Christ's resurrection. But some people might have a problem with that. And they, and they say, well, Christ is not first in the resurrection because there were others that arose from the dead before Christ. And you can go to the Old Testament and you find resurrections. Someone would say, well, what about Ezekiel chapter 37? There was a, a valley full of dead, dry bones. And they were preached to and those bones started coming together and God put flesh on the bones and he breathed life into those bodies and those people lived again. What about that? That's a resurrection. Well, that is a resurrection, but that was a vision. And interestingly enough, it, was, it is the fulfillment of, of Christ's promise. It's a vision of the millennial kingdom when God restores Israel. Well, then what about 1 Kings chapter 17? Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. That wasn't a vision, and it was a body that was raised. Or what about 2 Kings chapter 4, when Elisha raised the Shunammite son from the dead? There's another resurrection. And 2 Kings chapter 13, they took a man and threw him into a grave where Elisha was buried, and his body touched the bones of Elisha. And that man came back to life. He was resurrected. He lived again. So what about that? Or what about Luke chapter 7? Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. And you notice kind of a recurring theme here is that Jesus makes a lot of mothers happy. He keeps raising sons from the dead. Uh, and then Mark chapter 5. Jesus said to Jairus' dead daughter, Talitha kumai, damsel, I say unto you, arise. And then she got up and walked. And then what, of course, about Lazarus? John, John chapter 11. Lazarus was definitely dead. They said, he's been dead so long, four days, his body's starting to stink. And Jesus raised him from the dead. Then they had a party afterwards to celebrate it. All of those were resurrected before Christ, and all of those were bodily resurrections. So how is it that first Christ is the first to arise from the dead? Well, there's a big difference in all of those. They came back to life, but then they died again. They weren't given immortality. Not yet, 
They will be, but not yet. So immortality is the condition that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was the first to be raised in his body, never to die again. And then beyond that, he was raised by his own power. Jesus said, I have the power to give my life, and I have the power to take it again. That's what he said in John chapter 10. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so by his own power, he was raised to life. And Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he has, he has the power of an endless life. So Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first in order. And as I, as I explained before, Paul uses that term first fruits. It's an Old Testament reference. The, the first fruits were the first part of the harvest that were brought. Before all the rest of the harvest came in, the people would bring the first fruits as an offering to God, and that showed their faith in God that he would bring the rest of the harvest in. And that's what Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of this idea of the first fruits. Because he arose from the dead, that's the guarantee that all who trust in him will also be raised from the dead. Well, we come then to the second stage of the first resurrection, and this is the following fruits. And the following fruits are pre-rapture believers. These are all the believers that have died previously to the rapture. And that, of course, is found, we have to go to different places to find it all, but this is found in that familiar passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them. And as you know, that word means we will not precede them which are asleep, those that are dead. Well, the rapture, of course, refers to living believers. And the first group to go up is not the living. The first that goes up is the dead. It's the dead believers. And that includes all of the Old Testament saints. It includes all that are in the church age uh, from the time uh, since Jesus began the church up till now, until he comes again. Those are all in the first resurrection. There are some people who say, well, no, the Old Testament saints aren't included in that. That's, we're just talking about the church age saints. They're the ones who are included in this. And, and then a later time, somewhere uh, between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, then those Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. But I don't think that we have that in Scripture. I think we're talking here about a resurrection of all of those Old Testament saints, all of the church age, all of them at one time are raised from the dead when Christ comes back. And then, as soon as they're raised, in a split second, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye, then living believers are changed into glorified bodies, and they go up to be with the Lord also. They're also in the first resurrection, even though they haven't yet died. And so God immediately transforms them into that glorified body and takes them into heaven. So all of these people are in God's harvest and these are the ones that are next to the first fruits. They're also in the first resurrection. Well, thirdly, we come to this last stage of the resurrection, of the first resurrection, and this is the final fruits. And the final fruits are all those believers that are saved during the tribulation time. 
Now, going back to our text in Revelation chapter 20, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so in the beginning of verse 5, it also says, And the rest of the dead lived not again. And so between verses 4 and 5, there has to be a resurrection of those that believed during the tribulation. They are described here as beheaded for the witness of Jesus. It says they have not worshipped the beast. They've not received his mark. Then it says they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so in order to do that, they must have been resurrected. You can't get out of the body beheaded. I mean, you can't get out of the grave beheaded unless you're resurrected, unless God brings you back to life. So now they're in glorified bodies and they're serving with Christ. Now, stepping back through our study of the book of Revelation, there are actually several groups of these that are in the tribulation time. For instance, in Revelation 6, verse 9, it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, those are martyrs that are avenged of their deaths at the defeat of the Antichrist at Armageddon. In the seventh chapter... John saw 144,000 Jews that were sealed, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And so in Revelation 7, verse 4, it says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 in all the tribes, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. In the 14th chapter, John sees the very same people again, and this time they're reigning with Christ from Mount Zion. Revelation 14, 1, And I looked... And, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And then in Revelation 14, 4 and 5, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These are redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And then... And you have to remember now, uh, Revelation is not all in chronological order. So now you go back to the seventh chapter and you find these people once again. And it says, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindred and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And verses 13 and 14, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Then we have another case in, in chapter 11. And this is where the two witnesses preach against the Antichrist. Eventually they're killed, Their dead bodies are left in the streets for three and a half days. And then verse 11 of Revelation 11 says, And after three days and a half, the Spirit of God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So there's another Another two men that are in the first resurrection. All of these that we've talked about have part in the first resurrection. 
This is the resurrection of the just. All of them have been justified by faith. Going all the way back to the time of Adam, all the way through the Old Testament, up to the rapture, through the tribulation, all of them are included in the first resurrection. And Scripture says they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so the first resurrection doesn't happen in one day. It occurs in stages. And, and it's definitely different from the second resurrection. That's the resurrection of the unjust. Now, what we need to very clearly understand about this also is that everybody now and everybody that has ever lived and everybody that will live will have part in one of these resurrections. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you've not been born again by the blood of Christ, then you will not be in the first resurrection. You won't be, not unless you receive Christ as Savior. So you'll not escape death in any other way. I mean, the second death in any other way. The second death is eternal separation from God and the fires of hell. Jesus said, you're either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground here. Now, many people that are unsaved say, well, I don't have any problems with Christianity. Christianity's fine with me. I'm okay with it. But they've not received Christ as Savior. And just being okay with Christianity is not good enough. That doesn't count. Those that are on Christ's side are those who have been called by the Holy Spirit, those who have had their eyes open to the gospel of Christ, those who have made a conscious decision to receive him as Savior and Lord. And he says, if you are not for me, you are against me. If you haven't done that, you are not for me, you are against me. And so here the scripture tells us that all those in that condition are marked for the second resurrection and not the first. First is always good and the second is always bad. And so I hope everybody here is a born-again believer. I hope everybody knows what it means to be saved. Because scripture says that those that are in the first resurrection are blessed. And that ought to be quite evident from what we've already read. But we're going to come back in the next message and we're going to talk about why is it that people in the first resurrection are so blessed over those that are in the second. And we'll spend some time talking about that in the next message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your word and, and just uh, helping us to get through this and to understand it. And Lord, we do pray that everyone here tonight is a believer in you, that each one will have part in that first resurrection. And we're looking now for the second coming of Christ. We're looking for the rapture. But we know, Lord, you have many, many people all over the world and, and many people that will be saved later that are also going to be with us in heaven and ruling in the millennial kingdom. Lord, we pray you bless your people tonight and help us to give this message to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.